Amen. Well, if you take the word of God and turn to Philippians chapter 2 this morning, Philippians chapter number 2, where we'll spend our time, pick up where we left off last week. I do want to apologize. I've been sending out outlines and orders of worship, and this week it fell apart. <laughs> I, uh, our power went out on Friday evening and continued on. Internet was down. Yesterday during a baptism discussion, I spit water on my computer. Only half of it's working. I couldn't print out this morning the notes. My mouse is not, so um, we'll make it, you know. could blame it on the devil, but I think it's probably just me in a fallen world. So I'm going to give him more credit than credit is due. Um, I think it's just, yeah, providence. So let's trust the Lord this morning that it will all work out. And uh, take comfort in Romans 8 that it will whether it's good for me or not. It will be good for me. So um, so if you're willing and able, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. We'll pick up this morning our reading in verse number 12 of chapter 2. And we'll take our reading through verse 16. But the emphasis this morning will be on verses 14, 15, and 16. Um, by the power of the Spirit of God, um, Paul writes to those at Philippi and subsequently to all believers in every generation, including Christ Bible Church. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. And this will be our text this morning. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you again just um, not only because that's what you've instructed us to do, Lord, but because that's what we need to do. We recognize that this morning, Father. And we confess that we are incapable this morning of doing what needs to be done. Father, with all of our intellect and skill and knowledge and ability, we cannot accomplish what you, Father, desire to accomplish this morning. We cannot please you, Father, outside of your Son, so we pray this morning that you, by the power of your Spirit, would minister that Son to us, Father. That son is none other than Jesus Christ. So, Father, we need him this morning. We recognize that you're, um, you are explicit. Christ was. He said those words, Father, without me, you can do nothing. And um, those words seem to be more real now than ever. So, Father, help us to cling to you. Help us to understand that when we do, and our, we are grafted in Him. And outside of Him, we can do nothing. But inside of Him, Father, we can do all things. Not all things indiscriminately, but all things that You desire. Father, that we can please You. And that we can, this morning, as we pursue righteousness, cling to it in some sense. That we can be conformed to the very image of Christ. We can come this morning, Father, and understand Your Word with the utmost clarity, such that it would transform us by the renewing of our minds. So, so that's what we ask for this morning, Father. Not all things indiscriminately. Uh, not all things in the sense of all things. To certain, but, but to a certain extent, Father, all things that You desire for us. We understand that those were given and accomplished, Father, upon the cross. And we need an outpouring of that today 
upon our minds, upon our hearts, Father, upon our hands. We need our wills conformed to your will. So, Father, would you accomplish that this morning by the preaching, teaching, and reception of your word, not only in the hearts of those to whom I'm speaking, Father, but even in my own heart. Father, I need your son this morning. And I pray that you'll give him to us. I'm in full measure that we may please you in all things. So, Father, we go to your word. Help us to be faithful, faithful hearers and faithful doers. Um, and we trust that that will please you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for, for standing. As I said, we'll pick up this morning in verse number 14 and take it, Lord willing, through verse number 16. The last two weeks, we gave ourselves over to that previous phrase that was read um, in the beginning. Therefore, my beloved, verse 12, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I'm after an exhortation to work out the salvation that Christ has purchased on behalf of Philippian believers. And that's really been the theme since Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. You'll remember um, that, that I've argued that in some sense, and you could argue other things, so it's not a hill to die on, but the thesis verse of this, may, of this entire epistle um, of Paul to Philippi may be um, chapter 1 and verse number 27. That's where he begins to instruct the Philippian believers after reporting to them um, of his ministry and encouraging them to pray for him in many manners. And just encouraging them, the, the blessing that they've been to him. Um, he begins with um, the instruction portion in verse 27. And he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Um, that, that, in some sense, sums up the Christian life, doesn't it? There's many summary statements of the Christian life in just kind of pithy form. Paul is great at that. Another one of those would be the one that we just read in chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13 particularly um, those phrases, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. The Christian life, everything about it, is simply application of that verse. All of uh, the book of Philippians and, and much of the, and all, really all the, the New Testament teaching upon what a Christian ought to be um, is, is the working out of those verses, the working out of chapter 1, and verse number 27. And Paul immediately goes into that application to some degree. And we don't know exactly why, but we do remember, or should remember, that this is a, a, a true letter from a spiritual father to his spiritual children. Paul is instrumental in, in the birth as well as the ministry of the church, the congregation there at Philippi. So he understands them in a way that we don't. He's not just giving general teaching. He understands something about their proclivity, their tendency um, to certain types of sins or certain types of failures. So Paul is tending to those needs now by particular instruction. So he could have mapped out those phrases um, those summary statements in a number of ways, but like a father to his child, doesn't sit down and just teach them um, you know, necessarily academically. I mean, he often 
meets them where they are and instructs them in what they need from day to day. So given a different period of time, Philippians would probably have been a different letter because they would have been a different people. But they're not. Now, we have what they were at that point, and we are so thankful for the instruction that, that God gives them through Paul. And this morning, we should receive it as well. Because although it was a real letter for them, and uniquely to them, it is too applicable and profitable um, for us. So I trust and hope that it will be today. So Paul appeals to them um, on behalf of Christ to be what Christ has called them to be, what He's purchased them to be, and that is a holy people. And in this particular text, we begin mapping out, in some sense, marking out what that holiness should look like. Not holiness in completeness, but holiness in in a sense in which Paul sees in them a certain need. So he calls for holiness in a manner um, in which might initially to us in this particular text seem um, negative. He begins with this phrase, do all things without complaining and disputing. So I have two points for you this morning. Um, that may encourage you, but don't, don't let it encourage you too much. It doesn't matter if I have two points or ten points. It all lasts about an hour. So we'll get done at the same time. <laughs> I don't want to deceive you. Um, the two points will be, yeah, two long points. The first point will be a precept given. And you'll see that precept given in verse number 14. And then you will see a purpose stated. And really it will be broken down into two purposes. So Paul not only instructs them in what they are to do, but he instructs them in why they are to do it. And the two purposes will be found in 15 as well as 16. And it will begin somewhat negatively, or it will seem somewhat negatively as far as the instruction goes. The precept to given. Why? Because it's one of those do not texts. You know? For many of us, we by nature have a negative view of the do-nots. They seem restrictive. They seem to make limits and boundaries for us in the Christian life. I mean, all, after all, aren't we all free in Christ? Is there not liberty among us to do? And that is certainly true. That does not mean that we are free to do anything that we desire to do. It does not mean that we are free to sin. Actually, the freedom that we now have in Christ is a freedom not to. It is exactly that that we were not able to do before. In some sense, we were not able to be righteous and we were not able, not able to not be unrighteous. That now that we are in Christ, there is actually a freedom and a liberty, a power over sin that enables us to now choose Christ in some way that we were not able before. And in that is now the ability and the liberty to actually say no to sin, to be free from sin. Christ died um, and we died in Him to that sin. So now we actually have the freedom and the liberty that we have in some sense is not to. Whereas before we were bound in our wills only to sin. So now we are to walk not according to the flesh but according to and in the Spirit. And that's the call this morning as well. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. And you, I hope, will see as well as my own self that what Paul is applying here in this text is that. This is the application of that. He says, do immediately. 
And then you see God at work. And, I, and in what ways we'll see, I hope, some, some ways at least this morning. So um, to begin simply, we begin with a precept given. So this is an application of the previous verse, particularly to the children of God here at Philippi. Um, to do all things without murmuring or out, without complaining and without disputing. So the precept given is, the imperative given is do all things without. Literally, this could be translated, all of you, you are to continually be doing all things without. So what's the scope of the command? Or to what thing, what does all things refer It doesn't mean that you're to do everything. But it does mean that whatever you do, you are to do without. Quote, without. You're to do those things without something. It's not a command to do all things. We all can't do all things. We all can't be all things. That's the um, divine necessity and the temporal necessity of a body. We're not to be everything and we're not to do all things. But there are some commands that modify the all things that we do. That the things that we engage in, regardless of what they are, whether they're individual, whether they're home, whether they're church, whether they're community, that's the scope of the command this morning. That whatever you do, do all those things um, in a certain way. And not only are, is it modified in the way that, that we do those things, or, or positively, um, that we follow in the duties that God has laid out before us, but, but, but also in the way in which we do those, we are to do them without certain things. In other words, it's not simply enough to do. It's not simply enough to be busy. It's not enough to be active. It's not enough to um, exert energy. It too, Paul is explicit. Christ was emphatic that it is also imperative things that you don't do. Um, and now you have the power to obey those commands. So everything that is your Christian duty, everything that could be said that is contained within the previous instruction, work out your own salvation, and that as it is applied to your life is to be done without or in the absence of something to follow out this command. In this case, Paul instructs the Philippians that their Christian duty is to be characterized by the absence of these two things, complaining and disputing. And at this point, I would just like to um, take a moment to raise a warning. Okay? A warning. Why? Because for too many Christians, for too many of us, um, as we approach this text, I would just call a heightened sense of awareness to our own sanctification in our own lives. Because for too many of us, there are some sins that are tolerable sins. That we have just learned to live with. Um, And this may be one of those. I've got this book on my shelf by a man by the name of Jerry Bridges. I've not read it yet. Um, I've got a lot of my books. I've not read yet. Um, People come in and they're like, man, you read a lot. No, I was like, I collect a lot. (laughs) And uh, I plan to read a lot. And I read some. And it's progressive. It's progressive. but I don't need to read this book to some extent. It's actually on my list this year to read. But I'm convicted every time I walk by the book. I mean, because the name of the book is, quote, Respectable Sins. And the premise of the book is that we as the people of God have majored on the major sins. And, and there's a, an area for that. Um, yet we have, in doing so, we have grown apathetic or more su- for, for our more subtle sins. We have within our framework of thinking acceptable sins. 
as individuals and maybe as a church and maybe as a society, even somewhat respectable sins. I mean, they're, they're little sins that respectable Christians can, can have. You know, we can have kind of a push, uh, we can kind of push them off as natural, as minor, and we can even justify them, you know. Uh, not, not, not the sin of adultery, we're not those type of Christians. You know, we're not greedy Christians. Um, we're, we're not the type of the idolatrous type that are just giving themselves over types of, uh, of, of lasciviousness. All sorts of times of, of, of sins that we would condemn, you know, on uh, CBN or, 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 or Fox News or, or, or a whole host of other networks. Things like anger, you know. Get around with a group of men, we all are angry men in some sense, you know. And it's almost like it's an acceptable sin. Why? Because those are just, just what men are. It's just what men do. You know, women particularly, I'm sorry to generalize, but you know, they get together and there's certain things that are just general, you know, and we just pat each other on the back like it's okay. It's okay, because those things seem to be natural. You know, they seem to be things that we just can't get rid of. They seem to be things that are somewhat a respectable Christian woman or respectable Christian man could struggle with for the entirety of his life. He almost becomes comfortable with. Imagine for a moment walking upon a man who's planting a garden this year. You're interested, you've never planted a garden, you want to learn for a number of reasons, a number of things. You think it could be beneficial, and it could. You notice the man preparing the soil, so you begin to question him about the garden, how he gardens. He's telling you everything, it seems impressive, it seems interesting, but he says, I've been gardening for 20 years, but I've never, I've never actually grown anything. I mean, it's never been successful. I've never produced actually anything. You might say, well, what in the world? Why, not anything? No, he replies, why not? You ask and he says, I don't know, you know. I mean, you, you, you till, you plant, you work, you labor, you water for, for nothing for 20 years. Yeah? You walk away mind-boggled. Like why the guy would just keep doing that for, for seemingly nothing. You decide to watch him that season. You wake up one morning, you see the birds eating his garden, the seeds that he just planted. Things that survive um, end up eaten up by the deer. The tomatoes have holes in them because of the worms. At the end of the season, you go and you say, I think I've, I've got to figure it figured out. <laughs> Why? What? Your garden? Why your garden's not productive? Why? Because it's being consumed by the pests and the predators um, that are surrounding it. It doesn't matter how much labor you put into it unless you protect it, unless you guard it, unless you are ready to do the work. Unless that garden will not grow and not... not, not uh, it doesn't matter how much you put in or within it, but, but there is too an aspect of which must be without. It must be without. You know? And he may say, well, I just thought those were natural, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's just a part of life. It's a part of the environment. Well, you need to change the environment. Your garden will never grow unless you do all things in that garden without pests, without predators, unless you guard it. It won't grow. It doesn't matter. Can't tell you how many Christians I met that go to church. They read their Bibles, they pray, and you ask them, "Tell me what God's doing in your life," and they they, they can't tell you a thing. You mean you've been a Christian for twenty years, and God's not produced a thing in you? Well, it's not that I haven't produced anything. It's just that as soon as I do, it's almost like it's consumed. You know, you get to the root of it, and generally they're either, there's no real reason to think that they're a true believer, and you try to give them the gospel, or, you know, it's, it may just be that in this life that we as Christian men and Christian women have become comfortable living with pests and predators and respectable sins. And as soon as that, that fruit begins to grow, it is consumed by the sins in our lives. 
Holiness is not only what we do, but holiness is also what we do without. That the type of Christian life that we are to live is a life that is to be characterized not only by by, by what our activity is, but, but, but what it is without. And if anything will grow, um, it must grow in a proper environment. If anything will grow, you must be active in cultivating a soil that will not only foster growth, but also you must be active against the enemy. You must be guarding it. You must take care of the squirrels. You must guard against the deer. You must take out the pest. You must guard the garden and the work in which you are labored, laboring for. And in a spiritual sense, you must mortify sin. Um, there are no respectable pests. If it's eating my tomatoes, you know, I will take dominion. <laughs> Insofar as I can identify and take it. Why? Because it, it, it affects the produce. It affects the family. It affects life. It affects everything. You must, as a, as a spiritual being, mortify sin. That in this, this is not a call to passivity. Okay? When you think of without, many of you may think of a sense of avoiding. I'm just to avoid it. Throw your hands down and not engage. But it's more than that. This is do not do all things without complaining and without disputing is 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 an active imperative that you must take an active role in being without that it's more than just throwing your hands down and not engaging it's a call to watch it's a call to take dominion it's a call to identify the danger it's a call to pull the weeds it's a call to protect from the storm it's it's hard work and on many days harder than even the activity of planting of watering of nurturing in some sense that's the fun part the difficult part and the essential part though on many days is watching it's waking up early. It's going down late. It's identifying the past. It's, it's if this garden is going, then I have to give a whole day to this. It's seeing the product as essential and the process just as essential. Not only positively, but also negatively. That it matters what I put in, but it also matters what I keep out. You want to talk about two seemingly respectable pests in the garden of most souls. That really are one and they feed off of one another. It's complaining. It's reasoning. It's questioning. It's murmuring. I mean, they're not adultery. They're not greed. And I'm just concerned. And I'll justify the complaints because I'm quote unquote, I'm just concerned. Um, but, but, but in all reality, you, you, you will not be holy. You cannot be holy unless you're guarding against some of these things. And these aren't the only two. These are just two that Paul points out. And it's imperative that we understand the weight of this because, because the purpose statements, um, in some sense, hang upon this. Right? Paul says, don't do this. Why? Because, because the eternal weight is immeasurable. I mean, read 15. That you become blameless, harmless children of God. Because with these things, you won't be blameless, harmless children of God. Without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine lights in the world. That if, that if you do these things, all these things, these external trappings, you do the, 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 the quote-unquote religious things, and you do them with complaining and with murmuring, then you won't shine like lights in the world. You won't hold, you're not holding fast to the word of life. 
that, that if this is the reality, and this is the reason that he's giving, that then, then negatively, to not follow this command is to restrict yourself from the very blessing of God. You know, these things won't be a reality. And not only have we kind of cast off um, some, some sins as respectable sins in the consuming of our souls, but we have also, in some sense, learned to justify the, the reality or the, the lack of, of reality of verses 15 and 16 um, in our own lives, you know? See, we're just in a lost world. I mean, the world's continuing to decline. I mean, look at, watch the news, you know? We just kind of set up our tents and... And just you know, and just keeping our our family safe until Jesus comes, you know, as if the, the Christian church today and the people of God are not to be effective in the world, you know. So in some sense, we're 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 backtracking and we're justifying the reason that we're ineffective um, because of the re- and it's not because of the respectable sins, um, but but it's because of the world. It's not us. When in all reality, it may be us because a direct result of obeying God and Him working out our salvation comes with blessings that are imperative for the world to um, see and to be displayed. So one question may be this morning that um, am I, if I'm not a light in the world, why? You know, is it because the world is... Declining and debauched and just going down um, yeah, morally and spiritually. Um, thus, I justify somewhat of, an un, of, a, of, a, of a nominal Christian life. Or could it be that I'm not shining forth as lights in the world because I'm not holy? You know, that, that I may be doing things that comfort me, like reading my Bible. But at the same time, I may not be doing those things without certain things in my life. If those things are not modified by the spirit of faith. That's what I'm going to argue this morning, that actually um, the murmuring and the complaining and things like that are actually an external uh, manifestation of a heart issue um, that really is a lack of faith in God. Uh, When you murmur and when you dispute, you reason, um, all throughout the Old Testament and in the New, the application of the New to the Old, um, is that the fruit, that, that murmuring and... Disputing are actually the fruit of a heart that lacks faith in God and His promises. And, and that's, that's the application this morning. So again, if we're going to guard our produce, if we're going to guard the garden this year and it's going to produce anything, um, I know that something is eating away and not produced because of last season. But well, one of the things that is imperative is for us to identify what is killing everything. Um, so we must give our labor to understanding what Paul means by complaining and what Paul means by disputing. Because we may have our own definition. We may think we know what's consuming it. Um, but in all reality, um, what does Paul mean? What is God um, uh, trying to, what is God's desiring to um, teach us this morning? So do all things without what? Number one, complaining. Number one, complaining. The CSB, the ESV, and the NIV all um, translate this as grumbling. The King James, as well as the um, ASV, uh, quote or translate this as murmuring. Here in the New King James, it's complaining. It's complaining. The word is um, in the original form in the Greek. Um, original, 
gongusmos. I don't say that to sound um, intellectual. I say that because I think it's a cool word, and your homeschool kids will appreciate that. All right? <laughs> when you go home, your, your mother may say, do all things without gongusmos. And you should know what they mean. All right? Without complaining. It means to murmur. It means to mutter. It carries with it the primary idea of a secret debate. A secret displeasure not openly avowed. It speaks of a certain type of speech that is generally of a negative kind. Yet it has an undercurrent of discontentment, of bitterness, and a whole host of other sins. You boys and girls may or may not know what an undercurrent is. On the ocean, you may see the water on the top moving in the direction of the west. But an undercurrent would be a current that is actually moving in the opposite or a different direction underneath. So you may look and see the currents going in the west, but underneath you have to be careful because it's moving in the east. And there could be danger in that. that. And, and the idea here is, is that on the top, um, your speech signifies one direction, but it's not really true. Underneath there's something different. It's really speaking of hypocrisy. It's, it's, it's the, the same idea as hypocrisy. That underneath, you're, you're wearing a mask. The, uh, you, you're projecting something on the outside that's not true of the inside. It's deceptive in nature, and it's generally not of good motives. John chapter 7, verse 12. Um, you read this, and there was much complaining, that's our word, among the people concerning Him, speaking of Jesus. Some said He's good, some said on the contrary, deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of fear of the Jews, um, of Him because of the fear of the Jews. There's a mumbling going on, there's a muttering, there's a, there's a, 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 a conversation going on among the people, a whispering among them. Um, Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, this actually is uh, the beginning of um, the, the, the Hebrew uh, widows, uh, the, the, the church there. Uh, there's an issue rising above that some of them are being neglected. It actually began with, a, with a, a, an issue of, of murmuring. They're discontent on the inside because they're, they're being, someone's being neglected. Uh, and they're getting the raw deal. They begin to, to murmur. First uh, Peter 4 and 9 says, Be hospitable. It's a command. One to another without grumbling. That's our word. Uh, murmuring. Paul, uh, Peter's instructing that it's not enough just to open your hearts and open your homes and put food on the table, but that the manner in which you carry out that command is imperative. You must also do it without grumbling and without complaining, without um, you know, saying things or believing in your own heart. I don't know why I have to do this. I don't, I don't know why. You know, where, where's everybody else? I can't believe um, that, that the true hospitable spirit is one who is not bogged down on the inside. They're not putting on a front. When you come into the home, they seem like the nicest person in all the world. They're, they're serving in a capacity, yet underneath, as soon as they leave, there's a whole host of questioning motives about everything. There's a muttering, a murmuring um, on, on the inside. Other places in the New Testament, it's used in verbal form. What we've, what we've seen so far is the noun. Um, the verb would be in an action. It's something that you're actually doing. First um, Corinthians chapter number 10 and verse number 6 is, is probably one of the most explicit examples of that and maybe be applicable to us. Um, verse number 1 of 1 Corinthians 6 says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go um, to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And he goes on about judging um, one another. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm in 1 Corinthians 6. I meant to be in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6. 
Um, verse number one, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. He goes on to say all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. And he's pointing that to Christ. That rock was Christ, he says. Those were typifying. Everything was typifying or shadowing Christ, pointing towards him. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And then one day, 23,000 fell. And so far we're like, yeah, man, we're good. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not an idolater. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not lusting after evil things seemingly. Sexual immorality, I've checked that one off my list. Um, verse number 9, Nor let us tempt Christ. Some of those also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10, nor complain. That's our word. Murmur, grumble. As some of them also complained. And as a result of it, he says, were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom has come the end of the ages. Therefore, let him who thinks stands or thinks he stands take heed lest he falls so as we think on this i would hope that we would see and uh, we'll begin to illustrate even more in just a moment but again just a heightened sense of warning that grumbling and questioning that complaining and disputing is not merely a natural disposition an undesirable um, nagging traits a temperament that i just can't get away from i mean my father had it and the and it's instilled in me, it's just who I am, that it's not somewhat of a reasonable yet justifiable reaction that causes us to say things like, you know, I was wrong, but did you see them? <laughs> did you see what they did? As if they're somewhat innocent and passive in it, merely seeing somewhat of less than a desirable and possibly unsanctified reaction, but understanding, uh, understandable nonetheless, given the circumstances. I mean, how many times have you got together with somebody and they'll be, like, they'll be confessing a sin? You'll be like, oh, I will, you know, it's, it's, a, it's just, it's understandable, you know. I mean, like, did you see what they did? Well, Paul's clear. Brothers and sisters, it's sin. It's sinful. It's something that we're culpable for. It's something that we'll stand accountable for. It's something that does not just happen to us. It's something that we do. It's something that we'll stand and be judged account of one day. Not only is it sinful, but it is deemed so egregious. That it puts a stain and a blot upon the church such that it is seen by those examining our lives and renders us ineffective in the ministry that God has given us. We're not just talking about complaining in general um, or murmuring in general. We're actually, Paul is instructing us that if you do these things, that actually you'll lose your effective witness in the world. You'll, you won't be holy. I don't care how much uh, religious trappings that you give yourselves over to. It will render you ineffective. And you'll see that it was the same spirit this spirit that constituted the ultimate sin of the nation of Israel and resulted in that initial generation delivered from Egypt, from entering into the promised land, and thus they died in the wilderness. That it was this sin. It wasn't necessarily the sexual immorality. I mean, although, yes, God judged them for that, the idolatry. But with, I think it's arguable. And that's why he says, take heed lest you fall. That the, the sin of murmuring um, is often... Um, the result of an arrogance of pride, um, an inner sin 
that won't come out forthright and say, I'm upset and angry. We need to talk about this. We'll justify it and, and various other things and blame God. You go to Exodus chapter 14, verse 10, you see that. They come out of Egypt. They've not yet crossed the Red Sea. What happens? Verse 11. And they engage in sin. They cry out against Moses. Man, and this is just amazing. I mean, God's delivering them. In just a moment, it's going to be even more amazing. Why? Because God's going to bring them across the Red Sea. And what are they going to do? They're going to murmur against Moses. They're going to complain and grumble among themselves. And, and they're going to say, like, it would have been better. Moses, you brought us out here to die. They're going to see the amazing grace of God and the power of, and his strength as he, as he, as he, as he exalts it in, in Pharaoh and in the Red Sea. And in Exodus chapter 15, on the other side, the first thing they do is grumble. I mean, after a mighty manifestation of the power of God and his faithfulness to them, what do they do? They murmur. And they say, hey, you should just, <laughs> Moses, I don't know how we're going to get back across the Red Sea, but we should go. We should go now. Exodus 16, they murmured again. Um, why? Because of the difficulty of God's providence, the discontentment with their present provisions. Um, God is, is, they're upset. They're upset with where God circumstantially has placed them. They're upset with the duty that God has given them. Um, God has promised them, yet they will not believe Him. Exodus 17, it's almost every chapter. Exodus 14, 15, 16, 17. It's just this battle between um, the both of them. Uh, between the people and between Moses. Um, you go to Numbers. Chapter number 11, and you see really the problem that they had was not with Moses or with the leaders of Israel, but it was ultimately with God. Verse number 1, now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it. He hears it in his ears. Whether you say it to another person or not, God hears the anger in your voice, although not another soul does. For the Lord heard it, and His anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them, and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire was quenched. Uh, Numbers chapter number 14, verse number 26. Um, And the Lord spake to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will I? Not Moses. Moses isn't saying, like, How long should I? He's had that question before, though. It's like, How long should I dwell with these people um, in the midst of it? But, but ultimately, um, the question here is, God to Moses, God is saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? They're not complaining against Moses. They're not complaining against Aaron. He says, I have heard the complaints which children of Israel make against me. And then he instructs them, Say to them, As I live, Says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do for you, do to you. The carcasses of who you have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to the entire number from 20 years old and above, except Caleb and the son of uh, Jephunneh and, Je- and, and Joshua, the son of Nun. That the, the, the ultimate sin that led to their death in the wilderness and not entering into the promised land um, was because of the sin of murmuring. They were complaining against the Lord. Um, you could go on Psalm chapter 106, verse number 24. They believed not His word, but murmured in their tents. and Did not hearken to the voice of the Lord, therefore He swore He would overthrow them in the wilderness. The sin which is mentioned to precipitate the oath that God gives 
of his anger against them and their ultimate death in the wilderness. You know what the sin was? Not, not, not idolatry, not um, worshiping false idols, not, uh, not um, casting um, children into the fires of Molech. No, it was, it was murmuring. It was complaining. Circumstantially where they were and dutifully what God had asked them to do. And it's not a minor infraction. It's not a product of uh, simple fallousness. It's not just temperament or nature that one of my children have more than the other. No, no, it's a, it's it's a sin, and it's it's ultimately the sin of unbelief that culminates in rebellion against God. That's the idea. Their unbelief was a form of of of. Um, of rebelling against God's promises. You know how they did it? They did it with disputing. That these sins are not necessarily um, are, are detached sins. So number one, um, do without complaining or murmuring. Uh, number two, do without disputing. Um, in our English translation, the way that we understand disputings, um, oftentimes you may think of contentions among the people, um, but really the, the word here, disputing, is, um, is, is actually more than that. Um, it could culminate in that, but it's not necessarily that, that, that these disputings are actually internal disputings. Um, other translations, you'll actually have reasonings or arguing, but it's not contentions externally, it's actually internally. Uh, Matthew fifteen nineteen says, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. The word there, thoughts, is our word. Um, that it's a thinking. It's um, an internal. So ex- external murmuring, muttering, um, and then... And then internal disputings. Uh, Luke 5, 21 and 22, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, um, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemy, speaking of Christ? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Um, but, but when Jesus perceived their thoughts, that's the word, thoughts, um, He answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning, that's our word again, in your hearts? So Jesus knows their thoughts. This is more than just you know, Jesus saying, I know all the thoughts in your, in your, in your body, in your mind. It's, it's more than just his omniscience knowing the, the collective data that is contained within your brain and your heart. And this is God saying, I, I know what you're thinking about me right now. I know that you're reasoning in that, that against my spoken word, you're reasoning that I'm not God. That's the idea. Coming to a, 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 a man's wisdom and understanding and reasoning against the truth of God. That's right. These are the reasonings of men. Here they're figuring out according to their point of reference... Um, that when he was in the form of man and with the marks of Adam, there's no way in the world that he could be God. I mean, the reasoning, he's a carpenter. The reasoning, he's the son of Mary. I mean, the reasoning, I saw him grow up with Joseph. There's no way in the world, even, even in the clear revelation of God's word, there's no way. They're justifying their unbelief with the reasonings of men. Uh, the reasoning is, is only God can forgive sin. This man, this, he's a carpenter, therefore he can't be God. And if he's not God, and he's telling us he is, he's a liar, he's a blasphemer, and we'll kill him. And that's the idea. Um, it's the word again, boys and girls, dialogismos. <laughs> you, know, you come back to me next week and you tell me what dialogismos, you tell me dialogismos and uh, gongusmos, you tell me what they mean, and quote the verse, I'll give you something special. All right? Um, but, but I say that just to say again, it's just a cool word. But also, um, because it's the word that we get our word dialogue from. Dialogismos, uh, it's a dialogue. But it's not a dialogue with other people, it's a dialogue with oneself. You're disputing with yourself. You're reasoning with yourself. You're thinking. You know, you're walking around talking to yourself. You're reasoning. The thinking of man, deliberating within himself, um, questioning about all that is true. Um, all that is true. It's a deliberation with oneself causing one to doubt 
and to complain and essentially justify the wisdom of man. And this is a great danger. 1 Corinthians 3.18 and verse 20. Um, Let no one deceive himself. Okay, Paul's actually you know, arguing against the wisdom of men. This is what he's talking about. Um, dialogismos. Reasoning within yourself. Justifying unbelief. Let no one deceive himself. That's what you end up doing. You deceive yourself. Um, if anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. What is he talking about? Not just, not just the brightest men in the world. He's talking about the reasoning of men for, for the justification of unbelief. He goes on to say, for it is written, he, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. This is speaking of God. God catches them. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. Again, he's not just saying, I know the, the data and the content of their brains. He's saying, I know what they're thinking. I know that the wise are reasoning within themselves not to believe. And he goes on to say that they are futile. Um, the CSB translated that the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. They're vain. In their imaginations. And the reasoning, the rationalization for unbelief and ultimately rebellion. Paul is arguing that at the heart of murmuring and complaining is unbelief in God. And it's grounded in the reasoning of man. It is the expression of unbelief and rebellion against God. And men will have justification for it. And why? Because they reasoned in their hearts. That's the foolishness of wisdom. It's not just that you know, God gives wisdom and it's a blessing. That's not what he's arguing. You know, that, that more data, you know, we know that knowledge puffs up, but it's a certain type. It's a way that it's received. Um, it, it's not just wisdom. Wisdom is a blessing. You know, reasoning is a blessing. Um, that's not what we're talking about. God gives reason to men, sets them apart from other creatures so that they can reason within themselves. And the Christian should reason. He should dialogue within himself. He should, he should seek after wisdom and discernment. Um, but that's not what we're talking about here. Paul is pinpointing the sin of Israel and possibly the sin at Philippi. And, and he's arguing with Corinth saying, don't look to them as examples. Take my admonition. Take heed you who thinks he stand. Take heed lest he fall. Why? Because when you go down the route of reason in your own heart, um, it may just be a justification for you not to believe. You want to put a death nail in the coffin of an individual, a home, or a church, or a community, um, then this is the path to take. Um, Israel, you know, you, they were reasoning. You know why they fell in the, re- in the wilderness? Because of reasoning with Moses. Shouldn't have brought us out here. Like, this wasn't God's plan. You know, in the clear revelation of God. I mean, in the manifestation of His power. I mean, if God didn't want us to come, Moses could have said He wouldn't have parted the Red Sea. But you know what they do in their justification oftentimes? That wasn't God. For all you know, that was demons. For all you know, that was nature. You know, they begin in the clear revelation of God, reasoning why, why the circumstances are not God's plan, and, they, and thus they want to walk a different direction. That's exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to turn from Canaan, and they wanted to walk back to Egypt. They wanted to be slaves again. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I just... You know, they're crying to God beforehand. God answers their cry. And as soon as they get out, they're saying, man, forget the manna. We want the leeks and garlic. We want to be slaves again. It wasn't that bad. I mean, a man can live on that wage. Um, we'll just try to infiltrate and be effective from the inside, you know. Um, and God says no. Now, they're just reasoning in themselves not to believe in God. Um, that's the command. That's the precept given. Um, don't complain, don't murmur, 
Um, at the very foundation of it, it's an unbelief in God, and you're justifying it, and you're walking, it's, you won't be effective. You won't be a light, you know? Um, I mean, because of your murmuring, because of your reasonings, because of your weak uh, weakness, because of your unbelief, your rebellion towards God, um, you won't shine forth as lights in the world. And that's exactly what happened in the nation of Israel. Um, they weren't a light that they, were ought, that they ought to have been. Um, they, 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 they reasoned in themselves, and they were okay with it. Um, number two, the purpose stated. Paul gives us the reason, or at least the reason, for the purpose of the precept. Paul, um, again, understands their frame, and just like a mother and father, you know, he, we have the, may have the right to just give a clear command, and the kids obey. But it's often helpful to tell them why, you know, um, why. And that's what Paul does. Uh, it encourages obedience and even um, um, adherence to, to the command. Why? Why? That you may become blameless and harmless, the children of God, um, without fault in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Uh, so, so I'd say purpose number one, that you'd be holy, truly holy. You know? Um, the second purpose is actually going to be... So, so the first purpose is for the church at Philippi, and the second purpose is actually going to be for the Apostle Paul. Paul's going to pull on their heartstrings and say, do it for me, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, but number one, that you'd be holy. That the church at Philippi might be a holy people that shines forth um, a testimony consistent with godliness and actually makes an impact in the world. Um, but, and then Paul goes on and gives us some conditions. Not that, again, that this is all that holiness is, but, but in some sense, he says this is what at least part of holiness is. It's necessary for it. It may not be all of it, but it's not less than this. And thus he tells us what the nature of this holiness is. If you're taking notes, you may say that. What are the conditions necessary to fulfill the command? Um, number one, that you be uh, the, the, the nature of holiness. If um, you understand what the nature of in some sense, it's uh, three things. Blameless, harmless, and without blemish. Blameless, harmless, and without blemish. Blameless, um, there's no cause for reproach. Luke 1, six. I don't have time to go into all of it, but Luke 1, six, Philippians chapter number 3, Daniel, the Apostle Paul, all these men, women that were in it as well, um, were righteous before God in such a way that they adhered to the commandments that they were blameless. Um, the idea is, is that if you were to scrutinize their lives according to the law that they um, adhered to, um, you, could, you, could run, you could follow them around all day long and there would be nothing to grab a hold of. Um, they were blameless. They were above reproach. Number two, they were harmless. Harmless. Again, a strange word for us in our English language, but it simply means sincere or unmixed. It could actually be translated pure. Pure. It was used to, to speak of something pure. It would be like taking a, an eight-ounce bar of gold, or I don't even know, I've never seen a bar of gold, so I don't know how many ounces they are. Um, but it would be like taking, let's say, an eight-ounce bar of gold. And when you melted it down, you know what? you got eight ounces. Um, something that is uh, not harmless or, or, or is mixed and not sincere would be something when you boiled it down and six ounces were gold and two ounces were iron. Um, and that iron masquerades around as gold. To the naked eye, you wouldn't be able to tell when you look at that bar that, it, that, it's, that it's projecting something that it's not. That's the idea here. That someone who is unmixed is being deceitful. They're masquerading, they're hypocrites. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. The idea there is that a serpent is devious, he's deceitful, and he's thus dangerous. 
Um, he, he masquerades even around sometimes as something beautiful, beautiful creature. But when you reach down to touch, um, you, you have to be wise because he'll bite you. And one of our children many ages ago um, saw a snake and she was like, Daddy, can I pet it? No. <laughs> you know, as beautiful as she is, you know, to a small creature, to a small individual, you know, um, who doesn't understand that. Um, you need to know that he'll bite you. But a dove, a dove is gentle. It's unmixed. It's pure. It's what it appears to be. When you get a dove in your hand, you have a dove in your hand. You know, it's harmless in, in that sense. Romans sixteen nineteen. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf. And I want you to be wise in that which is good and simple concerning evil. Um, it's a, there's a simplicity and a singleness of hearts um, towards God. God. Paul is saying, not only should you be externally pure in the sense of blamelessness, that if somebody was to try to grab a hold, they couldn't grab a hold of any impurity. But I want you to even more than that, be inward, have the inward disposition of your soul. Um, that you are pure and unmixed. And without blemish, he says, number three, children of God without blemish. Um, the idea is there's no defacing mark or stain. You know, um, nothing major. You know? It's amazing. Um, we as the people and the children of God are to be pure and holy. Um, without blame, pure in heart, manifest itself outwards. Um, and all it takes is one stain. It doesn't matter how pure you are. All it takes is one stain to lose your effectiveness, you know. Um, and I heard this week the illustration of a wedding, and it's perfect, you know. Um, what's more pure than a woman walking down, in some sense, externally, um, with that white dress, you know. Um, and all it would take is one stain upon the back for all eyes to go to that. And it could be 99.5% pure. And all that they would remember was that one stain. That's the nature of the world, church. We are to be above reproach, without blame, and pure in this world, not only internally but externally. It's not a matter of just what's in my heart. And how many times I hear that today? It's really about what's in your heart. It is. It is. But if you have a right, true understanding of the heart, you know that it manifests itself in the will and in the hands, and that we are too just as accountable for what we do as to what we believe. And those two are interconnected and tied. And you want to lose your effective witness in the world, then it doesn't matter sometimes how much you do. All it takes is one blot and one stain upon an individual or a body of Christ to lose any effectiveness in this world and in this community. I mean, that's all the world's looking for. One pastor to fall. You know? One account of sexual immorality. Why? So they can reason in themselves and justify their unbelief. So they can murmur and complain against us just as they did Moses, not because they have anything with Moses, because they don't want to believe in God. You know, they're looking for that in us. They're not just waiting a sign. They're watching. They're looking. They're looking for reasons not to believe. And if they have a reason, may it be a lie. May they not tangibly and be able to grab a hold of this congregation, the bride of Christ, or any of you as a father, mother, an individual, and say, I don't believe. Why? Because they gave me justification. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that you need to be without blemish, without blood. And he's talking to the church. He's not just talking about individuals. He's talking about the congregation as a whole. Give them no reason. 
That's where part, at least in part, your effectiveness and your power is going to arise from. You're going to shine forth as lights into a lost and a dying world. Why? Because you are uniquely something different. Not because you're more holier than thou, but because Jesus Christ, the righteous, has put in you something that is otherworldly. And that will stand out in the midst of a wicked and a perverse nation. Some will say, that's impossible. You'd have to retreat from the world to be able to do this. And some of you may be planning your monastic type of living after this. To go home and like hide myself. Um, but that's not the command. The command is actually not just an individual and a personal purity, but it's a purity to be lived out in the midst of a, na- of a world. That's a, this, so, so not only do you see the nature of this holiness, you see the context of the holiness. But the context, as he says, in the midst of. Literally in the context or in the environment of. Matthew 16, 16, I send you forth into the midst of wolves. We just read that earlier. That we are to not be monastic. We are not to be hermits. We are not to live our Christianity out at home. We are to live it in the midst of a world that is falling apart. That we, that, that through our effective witness, Christ may be honored as King of kings and Lord of lords, not only in our homes, but among all men. Thus he says, in the midst of, or in the context and environment of a crooked and a perverse nation. The word there, crooked, it's um, where we get our word um, scoliosis from. It's scolios. It actually just means out of shape. It's not what it was meant to be. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 40. And perverse as well. To distort, to pervert. They're projecting the same idea. It's corrupt. It's distorted. It's not what it should be. Um, Acts chapter 2 verse 40, and with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Now, Matthew 17, 17, oh you faithless and perverse generation. Who's the crooked and perverse nation? Who's the crooked and perverse generation? I'm a hypocritical and deceptive unholy people who claim to be the children of God. I know that every time I've read this before this, I've thought, speaking of Rome, speaking probably of Nero, Speaking of America, I mean, look at the perversity and the crookedness of it. But in the context, I don't think he's talking about that at all. I think he's talking about a people of God who claim to be a people of God who are actually not the children of God. Um, They're hypocrites. They're deceitful. That's why in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, who are the perverse generation? Apostate Israel. Matthew 17, who is the faithless and perverse generation? Apostate Israel. This is almost a direct quote, and it is a direct quote in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. They've corrupted themselves, it says. They are not His children. They are not His children. And that may be exactly why. In chapter 2, in verse number um, 15, Paul says that you would become blameless and harmless children of God without fault. Children of God without fault. Why? Because the apostate Israel claimed to be children. They said, it says they have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish. Right? What does Paul say here? He says, you are to be children of God without blemish or without fault in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. That's what Deuteronomy 32 says. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and a crooked generation. We read Philippians chapter number 2 from a 21st century uh, Western perspective, and we think it's speaking of America, that it's speaking of the debauchery that's going on in the state, speaking of Rome, speaking of Greece, speaking of this. No, it's speaking about us, church. 
Speaking about people of God who claim to be the people of God who are not the people of God. Why? And how is that made manifest? Because of the blemish, the blameless, or the, the blame that is placed upon them. Because the world can look and they can see and they can grab a hold of something on us. It gives them reason and justification to, 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 un- to, to not believe, to be a faithless. The grumbling, the reasoning, the disputing generation whose bodies fell in the wilderness and their souls met a holy God. That's who he's talking about. Talking about a, a, a hypocritical people. That's he's saying that you are to be not like they are to be the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. When they apostatized, they did not believe, they murmured against God, and that's why they fell. You're not to be that. You're to be true children of God. You're to be without fault in the midst of a nation like that, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we see not only the context. Uh, of the holiness, but the product of it. What is it? It's, it's a light to a lost and a dying world, even in the midst of a wicked and a perverse generation. That it is the effective power of God to shine forth in the darkness. The imagery is of a blackness of an empty space. God uses that often to speak of the state of the lost. He says, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever? John tells us the world lies in darkness. And Paul is saying that with this holiness, that without the complaining, without the disputing, without the murmuring, with full faith in God, with a blamelessness, a harmlessness, a ch- as the children, a true children of God, without a blemish, in the midst of all the perversity that's going on within religion, you have the power and you should be lights to a lost and a dying world. Lost and a dying world. You have the ability to just say, oh, that's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It shines forth in the life of the sinner. And that's true. Paul actually says here that within the congregation, living out that gospel, um, that they are the illuminary um, device upon which the darkness um, is, is flees away. You know? That upon the darkness of the lost world, in this scenario, the believer um, that is holy, and, does, and, and, and without murmuring, without complaining, without disputing, without reasoning against God, just, just, just living according to the manifest revelation of God in his faith and his love towards God in the midst of perverseness, his faithfulness is like a light to a lost and a dying world. God will be seen. They will love us or they will hate us, but he will be made known. Why? Because they are true. They are what they are. He will be heard. They may kill Him, but there will too be some who will bow the knee to Him as King of kings and Lord of lords in full submission. That this is what He's arguing for. What's the means of this holiness? Holding forth the word of life. So He goes on to say, holding fast the word of life. This could be translated holding forth or holding fast. Um, you, you talk to Christians throughout the world that have written on this. It could be either. Um, 50-50 shot. could be both. Holding forth as, if, as if, if you're holding forth the word of life in your life according to the gospel. Or you're holding fast and that's the reason to the word. And, you're, and that's the reason of your faithfulness. And it could be either or and it's probably both and. What the word of the life, the, the, the gospel. That this is the reason. Um, by which our faithfulness is measured. But this is how you'll shine forth as lights in the lost and the dying worlds. You want to be effective? Be holy. 
And holy is not only actively engaged in cultivating fruit, but it's in also cultivating it without, without certain things, without unbelief in God, without hatred towards Him, with understanding of His providences, with embracing His duties, the duties He's given. This is, this is His purpose. You want, this should stir our hearts this morning, church. You know? No doubt, I know among you, God has given you a desire to see your children saved and to see this world transformed for the glory of the gospel. And Paul pulls on this church at Philippi who have a love for the gospel and who are standing fast against the opposition in the face of the adversaries. And he's arguing for blessings and he's arguing for, for a number of things and he's pulling, you love the gospel, then be holy. You love the people that are around you. You love that when Christ saves, be holy. Be holy. Be holy. So that's the purpose. Purpose is that you'd be holy. Don't murmur, don't complain. Be holy. And number two, the second purpose is that I may rejoice. It's an interesting phrase. Paul goes on to say, um, holy fast the word, that's so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. Paul has a concern. And the concern is that he'll stand before God one day and he wants to be able to rejoice on behalf of Philippi. Um, part of the purpose of living, he pulls on his heart, their heartstrings for him. He does it in more than one account, you know. And he says, be holy. And if you're not holy, or be holy. Why? Uh, for, for God, for the world, that they may be changed. But, that you may, but also for me. Paul says, do it for me. Why? So that I can rejoice in that day. And so that, I, that, that, I, that I'll know that I didn't run in vain. And I didn't labor in vain. Paul's saying, oh, Philippians, if you have any regard for me as your brother, if you have any regard for me as your spiritual father, in that day when I stand before God the Father and my works are tested, in that day do you want me to have the joy of being commended as a faithful servant who didn't run for nothing? Then take this seriously. Or we could say negatively, church. You could say, Philippi, do you want to break my heart? Um... Don't listen to what I'm saying. So I'm so, so you're, you may be thinking. So you're saying I should run harder, be more faithful, and more diligent for for you. Sounds a little selfish, doesn't it? I thought you were supposed to labor for Christ's sake, regardless of what men thought. It would seem that if Paul, that is if Paul wants it here for himself. You know why he runs to be faithful. But you know that part of that faithfulness was to be spent and to spend himself for those people. To present them to God as a bride without spot and blemish. Paul was laboring for them and he took great joy in their sanctification. And just as John is speaking of his spiritual children in his letter, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. That was how the race was to be run. So Paul's definition of running in vain was, was losing those for whom he ran after. His joy would be lost if they're lost. Paul's joy was in Christ, but it too was in them. Why? Because you can't separate the two, the head from the body. That we're so intricately tied that, 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 that I, am, I am in some sense in Christ. He is in, he is in me. So is Christ. Paul's not working in a spiritual vacuum without care of the world. He's not saying, you know, like I'll do my thing and you do yours. That's great. Um, it's no skin off my back. You want to believe? It's fine. You don't? No. Now, Paul's much more engaged in the ministry and the people that God has given him to serve than that. That would be selfish. It would be selfish to say, you do what you want, I'll do what I want, I'm looking out for me. That would be selfish. If Paul didn't care whether they ran. To look at your child and say, you obey or not, it's not on me, I've done my part. I mean, I've instructed you all my life, you know. 
Let bygones be bygones. You want to do your thing, turn 18, go ahead. I don't care. That would be selfish. Um, it's actually the unselfish thing to be so engaged in, in love and in commitment to them that you're spending and being spent. Why? For them. This isn't for Paul. This is for them. That's why in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. It's almost the same thing he's arguing. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for it would be unprofitable for you. Not for the leaders, but for you. That they spend and are spent for your souls, for the profit. Let them do it with joy. Paul's saying, I want to stand before. I want to give an, when I must give an account, I want to give an account. I want to give it with joy. Why? Because it didn't run in vain and you truly came. I, as he says in Galatians 4.19, My little children for whom I labor in birth, travail in birth again until Christ is formed in you. For Paul pulls on their heartstrings to stir them up to faithfulness. It wasn't selfishness at all because it was for their good. It was for their profit. It was for Christ's glory. He truly loved them. And it would be his utmost joy to know um, that they were faithful. Yes, it pleased him. And his joy was somewhat contingent upon it. But that was because his delight was in Christ. And what delights him more is that when the world has a people that is shining forth for his sake, that's the foundation of Paul's joy. For that purpose, he was building upon for the people of God. So it's right for a mother to say. It's right for a father to say. It's good for me to say. It's right for Paul to say, do it for me. That's why I'm here. And it would be my greatest joy to stand before God one day. You know? And knowing that I didn't labor in vain. That my life meant nothing. But that God blessed. Why? Because I truly believed that a holy life produced something. That's faith in God. You know? It's not being content with just living our lives here and now. You know, saying, let the world, you know, go to hell and I'm fine. I'm going to be faithful. No. Like when Christ comes in you, you know, and He begins to change your will into His will. You say in that, as in that, you know, you, that, 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 that passage that we read earlier in Matthew 6 is more than just a, man, it's just a model prayer. It becomes your heart. Lord, thy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what you could say, this is God's will, but it's my will. You know? And that God's joy is my joy and His pleasure is my pleasure. So it's right. It's the right thing for Paul to say. Do it for me. It would be a great joy to be able to stand before God one day. It's right for a mother or father to say, obey. Why? For God, yes. Do it for me. Stand before God. And also do it for me. Why? Because there's an innate joy that I have when my children walk after the truth. You know? What a great joy it will be to stand before God one day and present a people to Him. And He'd just say, well done, my faithful, my good and faithful servant. You have ran well. You know? You believed me. And because of that, I blessed. You know? Instead of dying in the wilderness, justifying every reason not to obey God, you know, not to go to church, not to read your Bible, not to do this, not to that, not to serve, anything, you know? Um, Paul says, do it for me. Be a great joy. To see it now. But to see what it looks like in heaven. I love it now. I love this now. Man, the Lord's day. I love it now. But I long to see what it looks like in heaven. I long for you to be there. I long to see the bride in all of its glory as it's, un as it's united with the Son. And to be a part of that. What a joy. What a grief it will be on that day. Um, 
stand before God and it's all in vain. That's what Paul's saying. I'm just human, you know. I'm just a Christian. I know what pleases God. I know what brings him joy. I know what he delights in. And that's what I delight in to do. He receives the reward of his sufferings. So I want to give it to him. And um, so the purpose. Second purpose, do it for me. Do it to be holy. Do it for God. Do it for the world. And Paul says at the end, do it for me. Do it for me. So church, I exhort you this day, do all things without complaining and without disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the glory of Christ once again. We thank you for the magnificence of His majesty and grace. Father, we bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We, I pray, come um, humbly yet also boldly into the throne room of grace, Father, asking you for these things. Father, it does seem on many days just to be inherent in me to not believe. And I know that it's there, Father, because of the complaints of my own heart. Um, Father, wishing it would have been a different way. Wishing things would have happened in a different course. Wanting even on some days just to turn away in many respects. But Father, remind me often of your majesty, your grace, and your holiness. Father, it is in my own heart a tendency to say these things, this is impossible. (laughs) Um, It's impossible. Yet at the same time, it is faith that says that it is in Christ. That if your son died for this, Paul instructs us in this, then remind me often, Father, and give me the faith to believe that it is more than impossible. It's your desire and your will. And not only you who change our wills and make us conform our will to your will, Father, but you also work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. So, Father, remind us often that, that if you've given us this desire, that Father, you will too give us the ability by changing our wills and our desires for that. Father, help us not to defy um, the very um, word of heaven and the God in Christ. By walking in this life, claiming to be Christians, yet denying the power of God thereof. May that manifest itself as greatly, not only in what we do and what our evangelistic endeavors are, but also, Father, in what we don't. May our Christian lives and our faithfulness be characterized too, Father, by living without. Living without, because we know that we cannot both live with complaining and disputing, and at the same time live with faith in God. That those two are contrast. So, Father, give us faith. And in that faith, may our complaining and disputing and reasoning dissipate, thus that, that we are more conformed to the very image of Christ. 
Father, it's a gospel issue, I know. So help me to believe the gospel more than I do today. Produce in faith in me as I glory in Christ. By the power of His Spirit, give us the ability to walk, Father, according to the Spirit and not in the flesh. That the world may see that we are of a different kind. Not that we can glory in ourselves, but so that we can solely boast in Christ. Father, may they kill us. If that's the case, then our life was well spent. Because men were made known. But they'll stand accountable to God one day and they must believe. Yet at the same time, Father, I know you're gracious. and You'll give us fruit for our labor. And men will bow down. Men will come. Children will come, Father, as they see the light of the glory of the gospel play out in our life. They will see true faith. That's the issue, Father. I know that. That it is not external. It is whether we believe God. So help us believe God and may that manifest itself, Father, in our hands as much as in our hearts. Father, we need you for this, because in ourselves we can do nothing. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing a song and conclude. Number 389, all I have is Christ, because truth.